All right, so if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series in a letter that Paul wrote to a church in the city of Corinth in the first century. And we have said that this is a church that has been fraught with problems. My brother did a series on this uh, book a while back, and he entitled his sermon series, Following Jesus in a Messed Up Church. And I like that. That's a good title for it. I heard another pastor that did a similar series in the book of Corinthians, and he called it Christians Gone Wild, because this was a wild group. They were a bit messed up, and their problems were varied, and they were many. And some of the problems that they were experiencing, I think, probably are foreign to some of us. Uh, At their practice of the Lord's Supper, some people were getting drunk, and some people were going hungry. Uh, There was somebody in the congregation who was sleeping with their mother-in-law. There was speaking in tongues and prophecy, and there was all kinds of crazy stuff happening in this church that I think for some of us, maybe we feel a little bit disconnected with. But the problem that Paul addresses in the first four chapters of the book is extraordinarily familiar to a lot of us. Because in these first four chapters, he's addressing the problem of infighting of divisions within the church. And it's divisions based upon certain Christians' allegiance to certain church leaders. And so some said, I follow Paul, some said, I follow Apollos, and so on and so forth. And as we reach to the very last of these opening four chapters, the very last section in these opening four chapters, it would do, we would do well to do a little bit of review of some of the things that we've talked about before that will help us as we enter into this final section. So we've said that in first century Corinth, there was a big movement called sophistry that was sort of moving through the city. And at the very head of this movement were the sophists. And we've said that sophists were these orators, there were these rhetoricians, and they were concerned not so much with substance as they were with style, the ability to turn a phrase and to present themselves eloquently and fantastically and to impress people. And sophists who did this well were considered something of minor celebrities in the city of Corinth. And if you wanted to achieve rank and status, then you could pursue work as a sophistry. And if you were excellent and you excelled, then you would gain rank and status within the culture. But if you couldn't do that, then what you would do is you would attach yourself to a sophist who was a celebrity, and in attaching yourself to their rank and status, you would gain some rank and status yourself because you looked good by the people who you knew and who you connected yourself with. And this problem that existed in the city of Corinth was manifesting itself in the church in Corinth. In other words, the values of the culture were shaping the values of the church. And what this looked like was that the Apostle Paul came into the city and he planted the church in Corinth. Now, Paul was not an eloquent speaker by his own admission. He did not have what the sophists called strong bodily presence. Uh, He was short, not that that should be a knock against him. Um, (laughs) He was not nice to look at. And by his own admission, his preaching was marked by weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, after Paul left, another teacher came in, Apollos. And unlike Paul, Apollos was a very eloquent speaker. And he probably had all of the marks of a strong sophist in the city of Corinth. 
And so there were some people in the church who were baptized by Paul, they loved Paul, they had a relationship with Paul, and they attached themselves to Paul, but there were other people in the church that were not attaching themselves to Paul, but to Apollos, because they felt by attaching themselves to an eloquent, uh, well-spoken orator, that they themselves, like other, others in the city of Corinth, would gain reputation and rank and status. And this was producing competition in the church. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, some I'm of Apollos. It was creating divisions and things were all fractured and broken as a result of this, the values of the city of Corinth showing up in the values of the church. Now, Paul has been addressing this problem in the first four chapters of this book, and he's addressed it in different ways. And so, for example, in chapter one, he addresses the divisions and he calls for unity. In chapter two, he addresses the true nature of true wisdom. In chapter three, he talks about what true Christian leadership really is. Christian leadership is not about celebrity, it's about servanthood. It's not about being a celebrity, it's about being a servant. Well, as we reach the final section in these opening four chapters, Paul directly confronts what he is going to identify as the problem that's actually below all of the problems of divisions and them connecting themselves with this teacher and that teacher. In fact, you could say that this problem that was below all of the other problems in the city that was leading to their divisions and their jealousy and their quarreling this problem that existed below all of these other problems is the same problem that, that is beneath the surface of many of our problems as a church. You look around this church and sometimes you'll find people arguing and debating about sometimes petty matters, like the color of carpet or the style of music, or whether or not we pass a plate or receive offering in a box in the back. You can have debates over uh, the kind of building renovation we're going to plan to do. You can have theological debates. And there can be fighting and divisions within the church over minor issues or sometimes over bigger issues. But if you scratch below the surface, oftentimes you'll find the same problem that was beneath all of the other problems that the church in Corinth was experiencing. And what is the problem beneath all of the other problems? Well, Paul identifies it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and if you could sum it up in one word, that problem would be pride. That's right. Or as Paul puts it, arrogance, or as it's translated in some Bibles, conceit, or being puffed up. Look at how he puts it in verse 6 of chapter 4. He says, I have applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So if you go back over the first four chapters, he's talking about Paul and Apollos and Cephas, and then he goes back to Paul and Apollos. And again in chapter three, Paul and Apollos, he's, he's constantly referring to him and Apollos, and he's using metaphor and artistic and, and actually fine rhetorical writing in order to talk and to address their problems. And so he says, I've applied all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He says, here is the problem that exists beneath the problems. You are puffed up, you're arrogant, you're conceited of, in favor of one over against another. And he addresses again the same problem down in verse 18. He says, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. 
but I will come to you if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. So he says the problem beneath the problem is arrogance. And in the middle between what he says at the beginning about these arrogant people and at the end about these arrogant people, in the middle of this section, he addresses and confronts and challenges and deconstructs their pride and our pride and our arrogance. And I want to invite you to consider how he does it this morning. But before we jump in, I just want to say a word about a Christian understanding of pride and arrogance. Now, there's a kind of thing that we call pride that actually is quite good. And so, for example, on Friday, on my day off, I built a little fence for my chicken coop in my backyard, and I am not a handy guy. I don't know how to build stuff. I usually mess up things I build, and I actually accomplished like the building of this little fence for my chicken coop, and I looked at what I had done with a sense of pride. And what do I mean by that? Well, I was satisfied in my work. I felt good about a job well done. My daughters and my wife have been engaged in dance theater, and when, they go to, when I would go to one of their dance theater performances and I would watch them dance or act, you would look over at me and you would find me beaming with pride. And what I mean by that is I feel a deep sense of satisfaction by their work. And in, in seeing their work, I recognize something of their dignity and their worth and the fact that they've been created in the image of God. But that's not the kind of pride that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 4. You see, that kind of pride is more about a sense of satisfaction in a job well done. It's, it's a sense of satisfaction in your work or in the work of somebody you love. But the kind of pride that he is addressing in our text is a pride that is essentially competitive. Do you see how he puts it back in chapter 6? or chapter 4, verse 6, he says, I've applied all of these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefits, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written and that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In C.S. Lewis's brilliant book, Mere Christianity, it's got a section on what he calls the great sin. And for C.S. Lewis, the great sin is pride. And he makes this argument that pride is essentially competitive. He puts it like this. He says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Or as Andy Stanley memorably put it, he says, pride grows in the soil of uh, comparison. He said, pride grows in the land of Ur. And you know what I mean by that. You gain more and more pride when you are comparing how you are richer or cleverer than other people. And of course, for most of us, we don't want just er for ourselves. We don't want to just be smarter and better and more successful or whatever than our, our, our neighbor. We want to have some er for our wife and for our kids. And so I go to the park with my little three-year-old and I watch how Johnny plays on the playground versus another child. And then I go up to that parent and I say, oh, how old is your child? Now, I'm not asking for pure information. I'm asking because I want to compare. 
Is my child doing better than their child? You see, pride is essentially competitive. And this was what was happening in the church in Corinth. They were comparing themselves to other people. They were comparing their teacher to other teachers. And they were saying, we're better because we, have, we follow Paul or we follow Apollos or whatever they're getting on about. Now, of course, pride is always most obvious when it's seen in the braggart. You know, that person that is always obnoxiously bragging and going on and on about their accomplishments and their achievements. And in a sense, that is so naive, isn't it? And most of us can, can spot that kind of pride from a mile away. But the more subtle forms of pride, the more subtle place where you can see this surfacing in your life is not so much when you're always going on and on bragging about your accomplishments to others. It's actually when in your heart you are secretly looking down on others or you're putting others down with your words or you're being dismissive of others or you're not listening to others because what do they have to say anyway, or you're exaggerating what other people think and you're creating straw men of their positions because they're not really worth considering what they have to say anyway. And you're dismissing them and you can't empathize with people and you're ready to criticize them and make your definitive, absolute statements and opinions about everything and you know who you are, don't you? Go ahead and point them out. In the... <laughs> and of course, this issue, this kind of pride that exalts in my being better than you surfaces in all kinds of places and it surfaces in the church. It was surfacing in the church in Corinth. It surfaces in our church and it is the problem below a lot of our problems. And so let's see how Paul addresses this issue, and he addresses it in three ways. Number one, he's going to address it with a penetrating question, second, with biting sarcasm, and then thirdly, with direct confrontation. Okay, so let's see how he addresses our problem of arrogance with a penetrating question, with biting sarcasm, and then with direct confrontation. Notice first, he, he, he confronts our pride and our arrogance our sense that we're better than others with a penetrating question. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so here you are. You are thinking that you are superior, that you have superior theological opinions, a superior ethical life, a superior work ethic, a superior home, a superior style, a superior whatever than someone else. And Paul says, stop for a second and consider, what makes you different than other people? I mean, who do you think you are anyway? I mean, think about it. What did you have that you did not first receive? Now think about this. Paul says consider, in some sense, you could say consider creation. You know, within the Christian story, creation comes by a sheer gratuitous act of God. According to the Christian understanding of God, God is Trinity. God has existed from all eternity past in this eternal unending fellowship of love and fullness. In the Christian understanding of God, God is utterly self 
contained. God is utterly self-fulfilled. God is an unending, infinite love, an infinite sea of, of love and well-being and utter satisfaction. In other words, when God creates, he doesn't create because God needs something. God wasn't lonely. From all eternity past, God was utterly satisfied within the infinite well of his own love within Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when God creates, it's not that he creates because he, didn't, he needs us. He needs something else. Instead, it's almost as if God just says, why not? And then as an overflow as a little overspell of God's own infinitude of love and well-being, he calls all things into existence. That means that nothing that exists needs to exist. Everything that is, is gratuitous. In other words, the air that you breathe is a gift. The warmth of the sun on your skin is a sheer gift. Colors and beauty and friendship, and taste buds, and good food too, and good food. This is all gift. It didn't need to be this way. Everything that we have in creation comes to us as a sheer gift. And Paul would say, don't you see, what did you, what do you have right now in your life that you did not first receive? And if you received it, why do you act as if you didn't receive it? And consider your redemption. The God who creates by sheer grace also saves by grace. We were lost and drowning in our sin, and God, by his own sovereign grace, by his own free sovereign grace, chose to move toward us in the most astounding the craziest, the most stunning of ways by pouring out his love on us in the crucified and risen Jesus and then by giving us faith to believe and by pulling us out of our junk and by changing us and then promising us eternity caught up in the eternal infinite sea of his own love. And that didn't need to happen. It comes to us by sheer grace. What do you have that you did not receive? And then just look at your own life, your own story. I know some of us, we think, well, you know, I've, I've made a success of my life because I've worked harder and I've worked smarter and I've worked more ethically than other people. I was more disciplined and, and, and I excelled and, and I see other people and they're just failing. I don't know, certainly there's something different and better about me than them. Maybe we don't say that, but we think that. But listen, who gave you the intelligence? Who gave you the hard work? Who gave you the family of origin that you grew up in? Who gave you the ability to actually grow up in a country with so much opportunity and so much freedom? I mean, if you were born in Mongolia in the 14th century, I guarantee you wouldn't experience the same kind of success you're experiencing right now. And if you were born, let's say, in Hitler's Germany, Nazi Germany, what would that do to you? All of your life is a free gift. And Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, if you have your intelligence, if you have your, 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 the very breath you breathe, if all of life is a free gift, then what right do you have and do I have 
acting in our hearts like snobs toward other people. Looking down on them and their decisions and their choices and what they've done. They're not like me. What right do we have of being so entitled? So entitled that everyone, I deserve this and why isn't God doing this for me? All that you have from God comes as a sheer gift. God owes you nothing. And so all of life is a gift. Open up your eyes You are surrounded by gift and gift and gift. Live out of the gracious gifts of God. Live as a gracious, grateful recipient. And it'll start to deconstruct your own pride. Amen? So he gives us this penetrating question. I feel like we, you would do well to memorize that question and have it seared into your brain and have it on recall. So that every time you're on the freeway and you're tempted to, in your heart, be a snob about other drivers, and let's just face it, there's a lot of bad ones out there, right? None of them in this room, right? We're all better than that. There's a lot of bad theology out there, and there's a lot of bad taste in carpet out there, and there's a lot of bad taste in lots of things out there, right? But what do you have that you did not first receive? And if you received it, then why do you go around boasting in your own heart, in your own sense of superior over other people? Get over yourself, Paul would say. He's telling this church this. He's being confrontational, isn't he? And so he he deconstructs their pride, number one, with this penetrating question, and then he moves on to some biting sarcasm. I remember when I was, uh, I first got hired at the church out in Albuquerque, and I was talking with a friend of mine who was the, the chairman of the board, and I made some sarcastic comment to him. I think about somebody in the church Not that I do that often, people. (laughs) But he said, sarcasm is not becoming of you. Well, it's becoming of the Apostle Paul. I agree, it's probably not most of the time becoming of me, but Paul does get pretty sarcastic here. Look what he says. He says, already you have what you all want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share a rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour we hunger and we thirst and we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. When Paul says, already you have what you all want, already you have become rich, without us you have become kings, He's appealing to a common statement that oftentimes the philosophers would make about themselves. They would say that the true philosopher, the true one who has reached wisdom, has become a king. He has become in need of no one and nothing. He is the utter self-sufficient, self-contained man. 
And it seems that the church in Corinth said, yeah, Paul, you were good, but after you left, we became mature, we became strong, we became self-contained. And Paul's like, oh, have you really? Oh, yeah, you are kings. You have everything you need, right? You're in need of nothing. And then he contrasts the way they view themselves with the way of, the, of life of the apostles. And it says, here you are glorying in your strength and your honor and your rank and your status and the teachers you're connected yourself to. And he said, but contrast your own self-perception with the apostles, those who have been commissioned by Jesus to carry on the work of Jesus in the world. And it's very obvious that those apostles who carry on the work of Jesus do so in the way of Jesus. Just as Jesus was weak and hungered and poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and reviled and slandered, just as Jesus himself on the cross was treated as the scum of the world and the refuse of all things, so too, Paul says, we apostles carry out the work of Jesus in the same cruciform way of Jesus. But he says, while we are walking in lives that are marked by suffering and we are poor and we hunger and we thirst, he says, you are glorying in your riches and your strength. And then look what he says in verse 14. He says, look, I'm not writing these things to make you feel ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became a father to you in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. That is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, so as to remind you my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in the church. So he presents his life and the apostle's life as being marked by poverty and suffering and being reviled and ultimately the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. And then he says, I'm telling you this and I'm going on about this before you so that you might imitate me. Imitate him in what way? Does this mean we should all go out and try to get beat up and give away all of our food and go in hunger and thirst. Now, I think what Paul is doing here, listen, and this is critical for us as we seek to deconstruct our own pride. I think what Paul is clearly doing in this text is whereas the church in Corinth was prone to exaggerate their strengths and to hide and to minimize their weaknesses, Paul is exaggerating his weaknesses and hiding his strengths. Or rather, maybe Paul would say, he's teaching us to find real strength and real power in the midst of weakness. You know, it is just our habit. It is what we do. We constantly, we always seek to exaggerate our strengths and hide our weaknesses. Do you do that? When you're engaged with somebody, when you're engaged with people who you may feel are more successful than you, they're better at the Bible than you or church than you or parenting than you, when you're around them, don't you try to exaggerate and present your best self? And don't you try to hide those aspects of your own life that you're a little bit embarrassed of? 
I mean, pastors do this all the time. I remember I was, uh, I think I might have told you about this, but I was on a trip to Brazil with some megachurch pastors, and um, there was a guy there who was pastoring a church. On Easter, they ran 26,000 people. And then uh, there was another guy who pastored a church of five or 6,000 people, another guy of 11 or 12,000 people. All these churches had blown up, had grown, you know, overnight almost. I mean, they just had bonkers growth, super impressive. And we were all sitting down at a dinner table, and the guy who pastored a church of 26,000 people, he said, so uh, he starts going around the table asking us how many people were running. So how many of you people running right now? And um, so everyone starts going around, and they're, they're, they're rattling off all these ludicrous numbers. And I was like the last in line praying that they wouldn't call upon me. And then I was trying to do good pastor math. Good pastor math, by the way, it is take your largest attendance you've ever had and multiply it by two. And then when somebody asks you how large your church is, you just tell them that number. (laughs) But what you want to do is, even if your church is smaller or whatever, you want to try to tell a victory story. Well, I came in and it was like this, and now it's like this, and it was like this, and now it's like this. And and you're always trying to present your best best self. Nobody ever gets up and says, you know what, man, we were were lower this year than last year, and lower last year than the year before that. We've been shrinking, things are falling apart, people are fighting, and I think I'm responsible. (laughs) Like, nobody says that. And of course, pastors are not alone, are they? This is what you all do all the time. You're a realtor, or you are a businessman, or you are a teacher, or you are whatever, and your constant tendency is to exaggerate your strengths, presenting your best self. Some of you are really good at doing this on social media, on Facebook, and on Instagram. You can take images of your family life and whatnot, and you can put the best spin possible on it, and then present it to the world. We want to present our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. And Paul would say, when you do that, you are operating out of the values of the world, not the values of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, God exalts the lowly. In the kingdom of God, God's power is manifest not in our self-presentation skills, it's in our weakness. And this gives us the radical freedom to do what Paul does in our text, and that is to own and to present to other people our weaknesses. Friends, you don't have to hide your weaknesses in the church. I know very often it feels like when you come into church, this is the place where you've got to present your best self, you know, because everyone's judging you. They've all got opinions about you. And so you've got to try to present your best self. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. Drop the arrogance. Drop the conceit trying to present your best self and humble yourself and share your weaknesses. Talk about your struggles in your marriage and in your parenting. Talk about your difficulties you've had in your own health and in your own mental state sometimes or whatever it is that your thing is. Disclose weakness because God's power is manifest in weakness. So he asks a penetrating question, he uses biting sarcasm, and then finally he threatens direct confrontation. It's always true, isn't it? That people who are conceited and proud so that they, negative, they talk negatively about other people behind their back, and they talk real big, and then they're always able to talk strongly about their own opinions, about this, that, or the other thing, and then all of a sudden when somebody who 
you know, kind of is in real leadership comes in and they're like, so what are your thoughts on that? They all of a sudden get quiet. Oftentimes that happens. It happened in the church in Corinth. And so Paul says, some of you are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Paul has a lot of really nice, sweet, great stuff like 1 Corinthians 13 is going to get into that great poem of love. But this is the threatening Paul. He says, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. So what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? Now on one level, Paul kind of sounds like Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah? Like, if you're like a man's man, Nehemiah's your guy because he, he's the guy who comes on, like, the, he comes on the, the job scene, you know, and there's all kinds of nonsense happening there at the constructing the temple. Some people are coming. And there's at one point where Nehemiah beats some guys up. Kind of looks like Paul's talking about that, but Paul's not talking about that. Remember, his whole premise all through is that the power of God is on display, not in our violence or coercive behavior, but in our sacrificial, self-giving love and honesty. And what he's threatening is coming and forcing these people to sit down and have a face-to-face with them. And friends, some of you might need just to have a sit-down and a face-to-face with some people in leadership at this church because maybe behind the scenes you're quarreling and you're spreading dissension and you're upset and you're on about this problem and that problem, but you're actually, although for all of your, your arrogant, strong opinions, you will not go and have a personal face-to-face conversation with somebody in leadership. And that's really bad practice in God's church. So Paul is saying, look, we need to have a face-to-face, friends, Either drop the arrogance or come out and let's talk to each other face to face. So he confronts them with a penetrating question and then with biting sarcasm and then finally with a threat of direct confrontation. And in so doing, he's seeking to humble them and us. But I I wanted to close just by, by, by saying this, and we'll go back to what Paul says in verses 18 to 13. You know, I want to invite our band to come up right now as we move toward our final song and closing. And when I was reading... Paul in this text going on on about his own weakness and sort of glorying in hunger and poverty and all of this stuff and then thinking about how that points back to Jesus and his own solidarity with the poor and the hurting and the hungry. I don't know why, but I was reminded of my fear of riding public buses when I was in high school. And after high school, when I uh, was working at a church in, in, in Long Beach and I lived in Seal Beach, I used to take Long Beach public transit every day. I loved riding the bus. I loved just getting on the bus and taking out my p- computer and kind of working while I was riding on the bus. It was always kind of an interesting thing going through the city of Long Beach. But when I was in high school, it's a different story. I was absolutely terrified of riding the public bus. And it wasn't because I was afraid of encountering some scary people on the bus it was because the only people who rode the bus in my mind were the poor. 
the people who didn't have cars or didn't have parents that had cars that can take them places. And I remember I was absolutely terrified of being associated and being thought of by other people as somebody who was poor. And I was thinking about how Paul totally turns this upside down because he takes God who is the strongest, most self-sufficient, that infinite ocean of well-being and love and power and grace and God in Christ comes among us and he is not afraid to associate with the poor. He is born in a poor stable just like all the rest of the people in the village. And he lives the life of a common manual laborer as a carpenter. And he associates with the peasant, not with the powerful. And then at the end of his life, the form of death that God embraces is the form of death that was reserved for slaves, crucifixion. Because God himself was willing to come among us in solidarity with us, in solidarity with us who are weak and broken and hurting. So that in coming among us, he might gather us up in his arms and carry us with him back to share in his own infinite glory and love. And that is really good news, isn't it? And if God himself is not afraid to associate with the poor and the lowly, if God himself is not afraid of weakness, then church, we shouldn't be afraid of weakness. We can, we can confidently and boldly own our junk. We can own our weaknesses and struggles and be honest about that. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to engage in the self-presentation stuff among us. That's all so exhausting. So may God give us the grace to be that community. Let's pray together. God, we ask that as you look over and you see us, God, you see deep down, you see our fears, you see our insecurities, you see our conceit, you see our arrogance, you see the ways in which we look down on others. God, we pray that you would enable us to have a conversion of the imagination, that we would see in your weakness true power, that we could see, oh God, in your foolishness, the foolishness of the cross, true wisdom, and that we would be those people who embrace weakness, those things that the world considers folly, that we would participate with you, that we would live in solidarity with those who are weak, that would be honest about our weakness themselves so that we together might know your power as a community.